Hello, hello, hello. This episode of the Exit 5 podcast is brought to you by Apollo.io. If you share a pipeline goal with your sales team, then you care about the deliverability of your team's outbound emails. No email visibility means no chance to get that meeting. This is the silent nightmare for marketers. We often don't even know that this is happening. The most common cause of it, it's actually an easy one to fix. You're not using the right tool. That's why hundreds of marketers at companies like Mutiny are switching to Apollo.io. Apollo has every tool you need to power your entire outbound and inbound motions. Yep, that's right. I said inbound emails too. You can ask their team about what that is. Marketers using Apollo have seen outbound email deliverability jump from 62% to 98% after making the switch. 98%, that means more replies, more meetings, and of course, more pipeline. Want to see what type of results you can get with Apollo? Head over to apollo.io slash e5, apollo.io slash e5. If you go there right now, their team will set you up with a free account for you. And as a thank you for your time, check this out. You're going to get a free annual membership to Exit 5. That's valued at $275 just for checking them out. And the tool is free. If you're not already a member, this is a great opportunity. And if you are and you want to learn more, go to apollo.io slash e5. This episode of the Exit 5 podcast is sponsored by DemandWell. A winning SEO strategy for your website means consistent traffic from qualified visitors. Your digital content can work overtime for you, but only if you know how to build topical authority to search engines like Google. It's not enough to just follow your gut. You need intentionality for your digital strategy and a system to make it easy for your business. DemandWell makes SEO simple by automating the strategy and execution your team needs to hit its search goals. Software built by SEO pros and powered by AI to make growth achievable. As an Exit 5 listener, here's some help with your SEO. You can get a free keyword feasibility assessment from DemandWell. They'll show you how the top queries and clusters to target for your audience today, what those look like, and how to tailor your SEO workflow for your success. You can schedule your free report right now at demandwell.com keywords. That's demandwell.com keywords. And get yourself some SEO help because you don't have to do this whole SEO thing alone. One, two, three. My new friend Tass is here, and unlike you listening to this podcast, she's done over 400 website redesigns, which we're going to talk about. But uh, Tass, good to have you here. You said you're a longtime list. Are you a longtime listener of this podcast? Long-time listener, I think, like, one of the first people have been trolling you. Not trolling you, following you for a while. <laughs> no, that's not trolling. There, I can show you trolls if you want them. Okay. And so you sent me a note specifically. You A couple of years ago, you listened to an interview that we did with Heidi at Tilium and found out that they were hiring? Yeah, so it was, I remember, October of 2020. Yeah. It was midst of COVID. I was working out. And I was listening to your podcast. You interviewed Heidi. You were doing like your CMO series where you were interviewing and talking about team structure and that kind of stuff. And then a few months later, they were hiring for head of digital. And I remembered the interview. So I saw that she and I had a connection. And within two weeks, I was hired and I was there for two and a half years. So you can take credit for it, though, because I wouldn't have known that Telium. I would never do that. No, that's awesome. I think that makes a big difference for me. If I can hear somebody talk, 
before I go and work for them. Like that was one of the things that initially drew me to the job that I took when I joined Drift in the early days was I had had David, who's the CEO, on my podcast even before I had thought of working there. And after listening to somebody talk for an hour, you can kind of like, it's not everything, but you can get a different feel before going in. I feel like sometimes I've gone into a company and I'm interviewed and I'm like, man, I had I had no read on that lady. Like, I don't know how that went. And I think it makes a big difference. Yeah. And it's a way to interview them and see how their mind kind of works too. It was actually a lot of fun working for her. I learned a lot too. We're very similar in the way we view, you know, just content and things like that. So it was fun. It was a fun two and a half years. I want to talk about digital marketing with you. Yeah. I also want to talk about you, like 99% of people listening out there went through layoffs and and then like, we're like, what am I going to do next to start your own thing? Yeah. So I, I want to talk about that. That's also relevant for a lot of people. But first, let's just like talk mostly about your background when it comes to B2B marketing, because it's a role that uh, comes up inside of companies like this role of digital marketing you've kind of made that your thing for your career in B2B marketing without trying to lead the witness here. Like, What is digital marketing in your definition? Yeah, I came from a traditional background. And the reason I fell in love with digital marketing is a little bit different from you, Dave, because I know you're just like, you're a creative genius guy. And you're like, I'm not as much of a numbers guy. I'm the numbers guy. The best part is if you tell people that you're a creative genius, they will believe it. Yeah. (laughs) So I just say that. That's like what I want to be in my head. Yeah, there you go. I'm not as creative as you. So for me, the numbers was just really the time. This was pre-Google Analytics, and I was writing content for this NBC TV station's website. And they had put up this big monitor behind me, and I'm like, what's going on here? And they plugged it in, and they had Chartbeat. This was like pre-GA. They had Chartbeat, and they turned it on and I wrote an article, I published it and I saw 13 people on the site reading it live. And it was like, I fell in love. I mean, the only other time was when I met my husband. So it was, <laughs> it was at that time when I was like, yes, this is what I need because the way we were measuring TV was, oh, we're going to sample 400 households and then project it to 400,000 and say, this is what everybody's watching, which is obviously not completely accurate. So this was a cool way. When that happened, though, you you and I talked about our ages before this yeah. podcast. Like you were young at that point. Yeah, it's not like you were some like seasoned TV exec. Did that? Maybe that's why it worked, right? Like you're like, this is crazy. We can't know who's engaging with our stuff, and now here's a new tool that, like, hey, we wrote an article, and I can tell you that 14 people are reading it right now. Yeah, it was incredible to have that real time data. It was so new at the time. You know, now it's just like we over measure everything. But having that data point, I just started becoming very obsessed. And I said, how can I do more of this and have more of that real-time data? So accidentally or or not, fell into the digital and website stuff. And I had a mentor when I was in school and I was going to school for journalism. And he's like, hey, listen, don't take this the wrong way. You're going to hate it. But I need you to, to develop some hard skills. And I'm like, okay. So I said, oh, what do I like to do? I like computers. I studied HTML and CSS. And actually, my first job out of college was working for a website company, building restaurant inventory websites, and then moving on to writing. And then I married the marketing side and that technical side. And that's just the path I chose and drove home. Yeah. Anybody that I've worked with that's been really great in the digital space has some thread like that where 
like you have a little bit of hacker, creator, website builder in you. And I think you need to know that because when you get into the world of digital, there's so much tracking pixel, this tag, this thing you got to do. Like you have to be a little bit more technical, I think, than the average. I just like to write stuff, (laughs) you know, type of marketer. Yeah. And it was funny up until recently, one of my sayings, and I like to have little edgy sayings, but one of my sayings was, I always look at things back to front. It's the only time that it's good is when you do back to front, you start with the reporting and then reverse engineer your way back into the messaging. And so I always look at let's foundationally set everything up correctly So if you're using UTM, set them up correctly. Is the CRM working marketing automation platform and then moving into the site? So back to front to help measure your programs as best as you can. Yeah, that was a big weakness of mine. And I think like if I were to go do something again, I would, in the past, I've been like, go, 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 go fast, go fast, go fast. And that's great. And we can grow that way. But I think eventually six months, a year, two years in, you're like, shoot, this is broken. This thing is broken. So I like, I do think there's a lot more housekeeping that I would do to get to get everything right. I see you not <laughs> nodding along, obviously, but it seems like that's worth the effort to make sure everything is trackable and measurable, even though we believe that not everything can be trackable and measured. Got to have that house in order. Yeah, that's a frame of mind that has been changed a little bit for me as I've gotten more active on LinkedIn. And I'm like, oh, you know what, Tass, you can't measure everything. Just look at your own buying journey where you've hired the last five people based on text messages with your peers. So yeah, that's been a hard realization for me, but I'm accepting it slowly. (laughs) Okay, but what is it about LinkedIn that, what are you seeing from that that's giving you that feeling that doesn't show up in some dashboard that you have? Oh, where does that start? This conversation is so hot right now. I started posting back in April, just as a fun creative genius exercise following the Dave Gerhardt model like 200 years after you started. Uh, So very late, but just started validating thoughts and ideas. And then I realized, oh, this is actually a data-driven marketer's dream because I can validate ideas without spending money on it. But also realizing that engagement isn't everything. So sometimes you can get like 12 likes on something, but then your DMs are alive with the sound of music. And so you start having these conversations, you get things like, I just commented on Dave's post, now I'm on Dave's podcast. I mean, those things are not measurable. And sometimes you got to go with that gut feeling, which I feel like I abandoned. I'm like, who needs your gut when you have data? But no, I'm bringing the gut back. So you mentioned a couple of things in there. And this is, I asked this because I want to get into it with you because I think it's an important discussion. Yeah. Because I have somebody who has a background in digital marketing and we need to come back at some point and talk about like what's in that bucket. And you owned all of it at Telium, so we'll, we'll talk yeah. about that. But just while we're here, like so much of the marketing and digital marketing, are the things you think that you need to do, the CFO loves paid marketing, paid media, because it's very tangible. It's like, I'm going to give you $50,000. You're going to show me what it, Google AdWords is going to show me which keyword. It's very easy, right? But doing something like you just mentioned, like spending time on LinkedIn, which is you got a podcast appearance, you found your last job, you've been getting new customers from your business. There's not like marketers, in the, especially in the digital space, they love to be able to say, well, on Tuesday, August 15th, we posted X and we got this many people to our website. But so much of that breaks. And what you mentioned is such a good example. And this happens all the time with like Exit 5. Anytime I do an Exit 5 promotion or... Like about once a week, I do a sponsored post. I have a lot of demand for like sponsorships. We roll it into Exit 5. And once a week, I do a promoted post from a, a company in the space. 
And sometimes there'll be like three comments, but I'll hear from the company that they got two big customers from that. Or I'll promote like my Exit 5 newsletter. And I'm like, oh, shoot, I haven't done a promotion for the newsletter in a while. I'll write a post about it. And it's very like, hey, join 13,000 marketers who get B2B marketing tips, blah, blah, blah. And I'll check on it. And it has like one comment and 17 likes. Then I go over to HubSpot and I see that I added 300 new contacts that day. And I'm like, shoot, this is a perfect example. It's not always this perfect chain that happens. And I think that's one example of things that just kind of like make their way into marketing. And you have to balance this line of doing things that are direct response and are measurable and doing things that just you feel like, yeah, look, you're building your own company right now as you task, like as an individual, posting on LinkedIn and sharing your expertise is going to help you drive new business. And it's not always going to be easy to measure, but you're going to know when it happens. Yeah. And right now, and I've only been doing it for a short while, which is April. And right now, the ability to have started my own thing wouldn't have been possible if I wasn't posting. All my business right now is referral or inbound just from sharing value up front. You know, no gated content. You don't even see me really mentioning my company name, except for the one time I said, hey, I'm going out on my own. Here's the company name. But I just don't talk about it as much because people buy from people and I'm just trying to make it more about other people than myself. And then the rest will come, right? Build it and they'll come kind of thing. So kind of testing out this different way of marketing that just goes against the grain of what even I've done for the last 15 years. And as a publisher, you mentioned this before, like whether you're a news a news business like you were in your past life or you're starting your own business, just as a way to, when people think about the ROI of social media, like as a way to measure as a way to, to figure out which content might work, it's an absolute cheat code. So many times I've posted something, I've written something on LinkedIn and there's been a response to that. And I'm like, wow, there's a lot of interest in this topic, let's say for B2B marketing on like how to report to the CEO. And I'll write a post about it. And it'll be hundreds of comments or like more engagement than typical. That is a light bulb to me than like, oh, there's a topic here. And so like we could do a full podcast episode on that and that would be interesting. Or we could do a webinar about that or I could find a sponsor to do something. And there's lots of little signals like that that I think don't get accounted for. And I see a lot of like brand, B2B brand LinkedIn content that's just promoting our stuff. Hey, we won this award. Hey, we're hiring. Hey, we're doing this thing. And I'm like, man, so many people are just using this channel so wrong. So wrong. And then you look at the likes and comments and it's all the employees who were forced to go and engage with the posts. <laughs> and I'm like, that's embarrassing. And I look at that too. And a, a very few companies are doing it right. And they're winning at the game. But yeah, most of them are like, it's all about us. And here you go. And if you want this extremely valuable piece of content we've created, it's a transaction. You got to give me something before I'm going to give it to you. But hey, I want to build trust and credibility with you. And then, yeah. We used to do that at Drift, but it was different. We used to ask everybody to comment on the post, but this was like in 2017. And LinkedIn was very, it was an old platform, but it was being, it was new as a content platform. And so people were not used to it being used like, Twitter or Facebook or whatever. And so we were doing that as a company, as employees inside of the company. And you could basically jack up the engagement so much by having employees comment on it that then the reach of that post would just explode. They've since fixed that now. And so yes, now, six years later, if I see 15 people in the side of the company, awesome, great, go us. It's like, it doesn't work that way. But it was one of those little um, hacks from the early days. Okay, I want to talk to you about digital. I'll read what you were responsible for at Telium because I think this is true of the digital marketing role. 
You were director of digital and website. And I think oftentimes it makes sense to put these two things together. I'm curious to hear your opinion on that. But you owned all digital marketing efforts, including paid search, paid social, and SEO, the website, including content strategy, team, support, and infrastructure. There's a bunch of other stuff, but I think that's those are the two big buckets tactic-wise, like all of the digital channels and the website. Why did you own both? Do you have a philosophy on digital and website? Did those two things work well together? How? What would you do again if you took a new role or you were building out a digital marketing team? Where would all these channels be? I, I would love to hear your reflections on some of that. I have always owned both. And I know that there are some companies who are larger and they'll do there's a person who's in charge of paid acquisition and they only focus on the digital channels and paid media. And then you have just organic growth that sits with maybe the content team or corp comms. But for the companies that I've worked at and anywhere between, you know, 50 people companies to 20,000 person companies, we've always owned both, which is the digital and the website portion. I think because they're typically linked with like a landing page And the digital, you know, you're sending people from those channels to the website so you can kind of control the whole experience and then the reporting on it as well. So it's a way to own it start to finish. So my preference is to own both so that it's it's not like a handoff that someone else is going to get the other piece and I have to work harder to get something off the ground. So that's my preference. And if I had to build it from scratch, that's how I do it too. I just keep them both under the same roof. What role should the website play inside of a company. This is a big, we could spend hours on this topic alone. And I I haven't really talked about website with anybody specifically, but do you have a philosophy on like what it should do, how big it should be, the footprint, all the things? Because I could make the case that you could have a one to two page website in a lot of cases. And then I see companies that it just, it goes nuts. And there's like a reason that the website should have 200 pages because you're in all these different geos. And then there's also the third bucket, which is just like, the website is just this absolute Frankenstein thing that 15 different marketing teams have changed over 15 different years and it's a mess. Um, what's Tass's philosophy on this? My philosophy is that large or small, you shouldn't regurgitate every part of your business on the website. It's kind of a storefront. You got to give people directions to imagine walking to a grocery store and you're like, I need a can of beans. There's no signs anywhere you're running through, the beans aren't logically where they're supposed to be. So I think it's more of a directional, here's how we support you. Here's just enough information for you to do a checkbox and eventually have a longer, larger conversation about something that's more customizable or suited to you when you have that one-on-one conversation. But if you give them everything that they need right there, cool, that can help them make a decision, but then you end up with this 3,000 page website because it's just so stuffed and you're fighting for people's attention these days. So can you be more concise? I think that's a superpower today is can I be more concise? Brevity is going to be your friend. How do you maximize the real estate? Because honestly, most people don't, 70% of traffic doesn't make it below your hero area. So do you have enough information on there to get them curious to move to the next section? And if they were to explore, give them the right information, right? And it's similar to LinkedIn, where we sit and talk about all the awards and who we hired in as the CFO and whatever. People don't care about that. And at the end of the day, if that's what you're going to fill your stuff with, they're going to bounce because inevitably they're they're selfish. They want you to solve their problems. That's what they're there for. You have three seconds. What are you going to do with it? Is the 70% like a stat you've seen or just in your experience across companies that you've worked at? 
seen. And I just ran an audit for a B2B company last week and it was like 32% and then it was drop off after that. Uh, Okay. So this is a stat that I wish I could articulate because I've been in so many discussions where it's like, and it's always internal. Mm -hmm. The VP of product thinks that you need to be doing a better job talking about this part of the product or there's some functional area, you know, you have a director of something, something in APAC. It's like one random thing. And then like the team gets, and I think of this from like a marketing leader standpoint, where like, then the team gets like sent off in 15 different directions to go build six new website pages just to make some internal person happy when like, hold on, hold on. My friend Tass just told me right here that literally 70% of the people are never going to ever see this. Why don't we just focus more on here And to tie this back to what you said earlier, in B2B, no one is buying something off of your website. This is they're they're not buying a hat and they're gonna click and check out on their website. And so the goal, I love how you framed this before. If I could build on that, like the goal of the website is to get most cases, it's to request a demo, start a trial, sign up for the free version, or talk to us. And so you don't need to put every single use case and feature and function. It's like the goal of the website should be a way to like guide you down that path and say like, yes, I'm, I might be interested in doing this. I want to talk to you now. Yeah. And that's the thing is that's where numbers can help with the story as well. I mean, it's hard because you go to any website and I struggled with this too internally is because you're everybody in the company is your stakeholder, every single person. I work with every department, legal, infosec, CS, education, everybody, because everyone touches the website. So you're trying to make everyone happy. It ends up being this quilt situation where you've just stitched up different parts of things together. So how do you organize the chaos and make it look cohesive and then try to please everybody because demand gen wants to put a CTA to an asset on every single page. And sales is like, no, we got to put a demo request on every single page. And then now you're sitting there with 15 different CTAs. You've confused everybody. Your copy's too vague. So I think it's about setting some non-negotiables and saying, okay, here, you have some flexibility below the fold where people don't even go. (laughs) So let's, the non-negotiables above the fold in that 30%, you know, and capturing the attention there. What's interesting right now in the world of of websites. I've been out of the game. I'm out of the game for a little bit. Are you using AI to like personalize content? People using chatbots or I don't know, give me, let's talk about the tech stack of the website here since I finally got somebody who's deep in this world and you're out there now, you work for yourself, working with clients, you know, helping them with website strategy and growth and optimization. What's some of the tech side of things that you're excited about or use? You know, what's funny is there hasn't been a huge shift. I think people are using AI a lot for copy. They're still testing the waters a little bit. I did build one website just completely with AI, just from a design standpoint and had to completely edit the copy because it was horrendous, obviously. But even design-wise, there's still some inflexibility. So I think that we're a little ways from that. And there's too many nuances because everybody's tech stack is different. So if AI helps you build something in WordPress that may not integrate with Marketo or whatever else you're using. And so that's when you still need a lot of developer intervention. You need consultant intervention So at that rate, you might as well just be in control of the process start to finish. And maybe some other website folks are using AI a lot more. I'm dabbling in it right now, but it's still a long way when it comes to website design because it's such a nuanced, complex, 
Uh, what would be your dream tech stack then? Like if I'm a client of yours or if I'm a series A or B, B2B SaaS company, what would you want us to be using? I'm pretty tool agnostic, but my recommendation outside of AEM, okay, they're going to hate me, but I can't use AEM. This is where I'm scarred from the 400 websites. We can talk about that too. You can't use what? What is it? AM? Adobe Experience Manager. Oh, Okay, never heard of it. Really? Okay, good. Yeah, I don't know anything. Good, you've been spared. <laughs> it's the only one I, I don't like working with. It's really hard. It's not meant for publishers. But typically I tell people, okay, if you're smaller scale, start small. Don't try to think and build for the future. It's the same thing with a product, right? You're not going to sell for something that you don't have yet. Sell them what you can solve right now. And so it's the same thing where, okay, use something like Webflow, for something that's more plug and play where you have a little more control if I'm not in the picture, you have control if you're a non-technical marketer to go make some edits. Please, please just listen to this advice and start small. Yes. I worked at Drift when we we raised $15 million from the beginning. The company had $15 million in the bank, but the founders were like, we don't have a budget though, so be scrappy. The very first website that we used, this is a $15 million B2B SaaS company. We used Squarespace. We spent, it was, it was like $20 a month because the CEO was like, I want this fast. I want this now. I want a website up in two weeks. Let's design it and upload the images and put it on Squarespace. And it's going to be $20 a month because I feel like what happens is a lot of people say, we got to do the website. And then you go like, should it be Webflow? Should it be HubSpot? Should it be WordPress? Should it be this other awful thing that you mentioned? Okay, well, there's 15 different tools and they all cost 30 grand and we got to do this. In my example, we've already shipped the website, gotten feedback on the messaging, starting to get signups. We got this thing going. You can make changes over time, right? Yeah. And the thing is, use this very popular thing called integrations, which almost every tool has now. And honestly, I work with three clients right now and they all use Squarespace and they're small scale. And then the ones that are a little bit bigger use WordPress. So yeah, that's why I say I'm tool agnostic because when I come in, my first thing isn't, hey, let's redesign your website. It's, do you need to redesign your website? Probably not. Let's work on the content portion first and then see if we need to scale in the future once you're ready for that. What do you look at to figure out like if the website is is working? Obviously there is demand, like are people coming in and and requesting a demo, but how much are you thinking about conversion rate optimization, A/B testing? And I'm asking those questions in the context of like this is B2B considered purchase. I'm not buying something off the website. Yeah. That's a huge component of it. Obviously we all talk about SEO all the time and I think SEO's also changing rapidly. And you you guys have had demand well and stuff on here and they can speak a lot better to those things than I can. But with the conversion rate optimization, we're looking at a few things, right? What are the desired actions you're hoping someone takes? Sometimes it's not always, let's talk to sales. What is the page? If there's a new feature, and I'll give you an example. Here's a great example. We had a pilot that we ran with Meta and running ads on Meta. Historically. Hey, it's Dave. This episode of the Exit 5 podcast is brought to you by Apollo.io. If you share a pipeline goal with your sales team, then you care about the deliverability rate of your team's outbound emails. No email visibility means no meetings. This is the silent nightmare for us marketers. We often don't even know that this is happening. And the most common cause of it, it's actually an easy one to fix. You're not using the right tool. 
That's why hundreds of marketers at companies like Mutiny are switching to Apollo.io. Apollo has every tool you need to power your entire outbound and inbound motions. Yep, that's right. I said inbound emails too. You can see how Ashby does it right now on Apollo's site. Marketers using Apollo have seen email deliverability jump from 62% to 98% after making the switch. 98%, that means more replies, more meetings, and of course, more pipeline. Want to see what type of results you can get? Head over right now to apollo.io slash exit5 and start using it completely free. That's apollo.io slash exit5. You can start using the tool completely free. You don't even need a credit card to get started. Go and check them out. Apollo.io slash exit5. Meta doesn't do well for B2B. We all know this, right? But what we were able to tell was running some ads there just spiked the organic traffic for a meta blog on our site, no relation, by 30%. So sometimes it's also putting two and two together. I always say it's like dementia on smoking, right? You have to make that connection, dementia when you're 80 and smoking when you're 20 or whatever. So that's kind of how we look at it too, which is what activities are helping lift the website and doing some of those analytics throughout. Every month we would report on the website performance and talk about here are the strange things in the market that are making people look up, you know, privacy or third-party cookies or whatever, and that's helping us grow. So sometimes it isn't the website itself, it's how the market's responding, you know, and what's hot right now, what's trending right now. So we do a lot there and actually I just put a post out and I use Drift as an example with their demo page experience. And that's one of the first pages I'll look at to optimize, but certain things that I found that work really well, setting expectations, because people think they fill out a demo request and SDR is going to contact them and give them a demo right away of the product, not how it works. So it's just saying, hey, we'll have a discovery call. Then we're going to have, we'll see if we're the right fit for you. We'll customize the demo and then we'll go on. Having them schedule a meeting right away versus filling out a form, waiting 24 hours, or you may never be heard back (laughs) again. So just things like that, small changes. You don't have to make anything large. You can just make little iterations. But the biggest mistake I see is people don't give it enough time. They make a change and then, oh, it doesn't work. And next week they want to change it. Give it time. Also, what's tough about that is there's only so much you can do on the website. To your example earlier, this is like our, the website is our store. There's only... Once they're in there, there's only so much that we can do. And I think we like to believe that like, there's people that talk about like, yeah, you just got to drive more high intent traffic. It's like, oh, well, how do you do, is there a button you just press (laughs) and you get more high intent traffic? It's like, well, maybe more people need to know who we are. More people need to know we can do this. Maybe the perception is this or there's too many reasons to just focus on the website. And oftentimes in B2B, you're not going to have hundreds of thousands of visitors every week come into your site. And so like the amount of time it's going to take to get hundreds of thousands of eyeballs on your site to get the answers that you need is, is going to be tough. Yeah, totally. And here's another thing is I think it's a lot of education that needs to happen internally too, where sometimes, you know, if you're reporting to a group or reporting up, they get hung up on the traffic numbers. And sometimes it's not about that. It's a level deeper. So I'll give you an example. Last year, you know, year over year, the traffic was exactly the same, but our demo submissions and requests went up by 30%. That's a huge indicator of intent going up, quality going up, 
based on whatever activities we were doing, especially brand related or things you can't measure, they're coming in looking like organic or direct traffic, even though numbers weren't really, you know, spiking. But then you look at the submissions, you're like, oh, holy cow, 30% is a huge jump year over year, especially in a bad economy. So that's something where you have to be a storyteller a little bit and bring that to surface to show that sometimes it's not just the surface level. Oh, we want 50,000 people coming to our website every month. So you own the tech, the actual website, but did you work closely? Like who owned the copy, the positioning, the messaging, the design? Can you talk about that? Yeah. So with our marketing team, I worked very closely with each department to build out the website copy. So our head of content and I would work together very closely on SEO related stuff, on copy related stuff. I'd work with product for really core messaging across the entire site. So if it was anything to do with our solutions, use cases, product, they were typically involved. And then worked very closely with Mops to work on the forms. So our forms were the Marketo forms. So I worked very lock and step with them. Actually, so much so that Mops leader and I had one-on-ones every week. My head of content and I had one-on-ones every week because everybody touches the website. And so we had to work together to own that and do that together. Tech stack was kind of half and half. I owned a lot of the tech that went with the site on the digital end. So things like Drift, the CDN, hosting, CMS, all of that stuff I owned. And then Mops owned, you know, the marketing automation platform and sales ops, the CRM. So there was a lot of merging of heads that needed to happen to make one thing fly. What's been the best execution of positioning and messaging and the website telling the right story? I don't necessarily need a specific example, but I'm looking to see as the person who owns the website, when you're on the receiving end of that, a company that like has their shit together when it comes to telling the company's story and executing on the website, what does that look like? It's not a perfect science. There's no one who's just like knocked it out of the park. But my company before last, it was a fun one to work on because it was manufacturing SaaS, right? Which everybody's like, oh my gosh, boring, please. Because I know that there's some marketers who are like, I will only sell MarTech. <laughs> I cannot do DevOps. I can't do anything else. But with manufacturing SaaS, you would imagine it's like the old, boring, blue, you know, just, okay, everybody's in hard hats, whatever. But they took a completely different approach when we did the redesign, where they focused on an outlaw brand. And so they went completely bold against the grain. Even the tone of the copy across the entire site was this edgy outlaw tone. And it was like you were in a Western and a sheriff is giving you direction on everything. So that was a really cool project to work on. And it took, you know, moving mountains, but everybody kind of dropped everything. And that was all we were focused on. We went into a deep, dark hole for three months and just worked on launching the website. And it was a pretty smooth launch, you know, between everybody. But the positioning was pretty cool. And and it's not something you would ever see in manufacturing. What's too long to redesign a website, to relaunch a website? What's too short and what's too long? Three to five months is typically the sweet spot for B2B enterprise or any bigger B2B company. I've done it in as small of a time as like three to four weeks. Typically when I'm hired on, that's something they hire me on for. It's to, it's always the first project. Hey, we got to redesign the website. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> They're like, yeah, we hired you to like 
because we have this problem yeah. that we need to solve, not because we want you to spend three months talking to everybody inside the company. Yeah, exactly. It's never like, hey, we need to really iron out our paid media strategy. It's always the first thing is, hey, we need to redo our website. So we really love that you've done 400. I'm like, well, let's just add it to the pile. Let's go. So that's always the biggest thing. But three to five months sweet spot, longest one I've done is over two years and more of like a phased approach. It was a new type of way that we did that because we worked very closely with each stakeholder and each stakeholder group got a lot of attention to make it just right. But the problem is the life cycle of a website is pretty short, two to three years. And either you're due for a redesign if you haven't kept it up to date and had someone to maintain it through that period. But yeah, don't make it last two or three years. That's my advice. You sent me some awesome notes a while back, and I'm just going to pull them up, and maybe we can spend a couple minutes riffing on on each of these, right? Love it. Let's do it. First question is, what to do if you're starting in digital marketing today? Oh, man. This market is brutal, and I get a lot of DMs from people just entering the job market there in college. They're like, I don't even have experience. How am I supposed to compete with 2,000 applications? <laughs> And I was trying to put myself in a time machine. And I said, okay, if I went back right now, the first thing I do to get experience is try to build something on my own. And it's not even about, oh, I'm going to try to build a following. Yeah, I'm going to be so cool. I'm going to be the next TikTok star. It's not about that. It's all the auxiliary skills that come around that, right? You learn copywriting if you're doing it on LinkedIn. You learn how to talk to people and network. You build relationships. But say you you start to get into TikTok, you learn some basic video editing skills. You learn how to sell yourself. You learn about analytics and what messaging resonates. So that's what I've told actually a couple of people to do is just start posting. And they're like, well, I don't know what to post about. And I'm like, well, it doesn't have to be marketing related. What do you, what do you like to do? Fitness? You like video games? Talk about video games. Yeah, that's great. And I love that advice because it's really... It's tactical. It's like anybody can go do that, right? Yeah. And especially earlier on in your career, like if you're at a bigger company, you might not have the keys. Like earlier on in my career, like I couldn't just go mess around <laughs> with the website, but I got to start my own podcast. And when I started my own podcast, I created a website for that. And I feel like I learned so much in the three months of like, I had to buy a domain, I had to set up uh, security, I had to add the copy, I had to find a freelance designer and like, that's stuff that I didn't learn on the job, but I had to just figure it out. I love that advice. And like, you can do it. And you, you know, maybe you spend a hundred bucks on your own on buying some tools and stuff to get this off the ground. It would be totally worth it. I'd be so impressed if I saw a resume that said, oh, I built this versus, oh, I grew my company page from 1,000 to 2,000. It's like, okay, cool. You built something for yourself from 1,000 to 2,000. That's going to pique my interest. So yeah, totally. Okay, so... Summary is start something on don't wait to be hired. I always found that this type of candidate was the best person to interview, which is like, hey, and also people early in their career are like, well, how do I get into this? Or later in your career, if you want to make a switch, how do I get into this X, but I have, don't have experience about it? Well, start a blog about it. I talked to a guy the other day. He's like, hey, I want to get into partnerships, but I don't have any experience in partnerships. And I was like, well, what if you just started a podcast or started a newsletter or blog where you once a week you dug into the partner strategy of some company and like you're not an expert in it, but you learned about it. Now I'm interviewing you and you want that role. Like I can tell that you're passionate about this topic and you're learning. Okay. Next one is saving everybody. The CFOs out there will love this one. Saving the company before making them money. How do you do that? Oh, this is my favorite question ever, which is why I threw it in there. 
They don't call me bargain boba for nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Bargain boba. Bargain boba. I'm serious. Okay, I'm going to show you something. So I have a mug that says wrecking ball on it. This was nominated by the marketing team I worked with. After your probation period of 90 days, they nominate a a nickname for you. So it says wrecking ball because I come in and the first thing I actually do, you talk about quick wins all the time and you talk about low hanging fruit. So for me, the low hanging fruit is I come in and the first thing I do is who are the vendors and what technology are we using today? And I'm not coming agencies out there like, oh my gosh, she's the worst kind of person. Tass is coming with that. She's going to cut that, <laughs> cut that contract short. <laughs> and it's not even about that. But I think that that's something to be said, right? Like if I come in and I see Drift, I'm like, yes, I'm excited. They're using Drift. Drift has been so successful for the last two companies I've worked at. But then I see no adoption or they're not utilizing it correctly. I already know that's something I need to dig in and either promote adoption and education or say, hey, if this is not something we're going to leverage right now, use the money for something else. And so sometimes it's the smaller stuff, too. There's like a lot of plugins and things like that that you can clean up. And then you have a smaller list to manage as well. But I've saved companies anywhere between thirty dollars to $65,000 just doing that. Totally. Yeah, let, like come in, audit the tech stack, and let's trim a bunch of stuff. I do that. <laughs> I need to do a better job of that, even in my own, like my personal business. But like once a month, I'll just have a panic about expenses or something. And then I'll go look at my American Express like business card and I'll be like, $19 for this recurring, like random SaaS tool. And it's like, well, I just saved myself 240 bucks this year. Okay. Now, n- but think about that inside of the company, right? There was, there's just so many things, especially if there's been a team there before that people are signed up that you don't know who the heck is using, right? Yeah, and you're scared to get rid of something because you're like, what if someone in some random dark hole of the company is using this and I kill it and then someone's going to scream? Just cut it. And if they scream, then we'll do a discovery process again. The wrecking ball. The wrecking ball. I love that. I like that you just come in and make stuff happen. Not everybody agrees with that. And I can see I am more empathetic than I might seem on LinkedIn sometimes, (laughs) but I... I can see both sides of that. I can see how you there are certain roles and certain things that like you don't want to come in in certain stages of a company. You can't come in and change everything. But in my experience, I've been mostly in the startup arena and or hired to do a specific thing where before taking the job as CMO, I spent three months with the CEO talking about all the things you want to do. So like, heck yeah, once I start, we're going to make a ton of changes in the first month because why are we going to wait? But I do like that overall, my bias would be towards like, if we hired you for a reason, why do we have to wait for month three when you've talked to everybody inside of the company and feel up to speed to make these decisions? Like, let's go right now, learn on the job. That's the best way to do it. And I think it's easier for someone like me to come in as a head of digital and website rather than a CMO to come in and say, I'm going to make a whole bunch of changes. It's better for the CMO to wait a little bit, just kind of see how everything works together. But I have the advantage of coming in and saying, okay, I mean, working through the tech stack doesn't really hurt anybody. It's going to save the company money right off the bat. It's not impacting anyone's jobs. Yeah, it's a win-win for me. You mentioned picking the right external resources. I've made a lot of mistakes with agencies. I'm sure many people listening have, and I don't feel like I have a good playbook for hiring agencies other than now I only hire with agencies of people that I've heard of or worked with, worked with in the past. Mm-hmm. In the digital and website world, there's a lot of agencies. What's your framework for picking the right one? I'm very process-driven. So this is, again, where creative genius versus type A <laughs> process Sure. This is why I suck at making at doing things like that. Because <laughs> there is no process. It's like, oh, I have an idea. But you're so good at the, 
I'm just going to kickstart a podcast. Meanwhile, I've had this mic for like six months and I'm like, I'm going to start a podcast. And I'm just like, I'm where's the data? But then, you know, you got to do stuff before the data comes. Well, first of all, the data is going to come in after this because when we post this, <laughs> you're going to get people messaging on LinkedIn. And for what it's worth, the ROI on the podcast, you sound great right now. And so it was worth it. Thank you. Not as shaky as I thought I'd be. So that's good. So... Yeah, I actually have a framework. So they call me the template queen. I have a template for everything. Are you having a child? I have a template. So message me if you're having a baby. I have a template for everything that you need regarding a baby or a wedding or a honeymoon or a trip, everything. So I have a template for picking the right partner. And even though I love my partners, I have really good relationships with agencies I've worked with in the past. I am a person who believes in fairness and equality. And so what I do is, I source agencies from a couple of places. So I'll go look up on Google, especially if it's an ads, you know, Google ads agency, I'll be like, well, are you ranking? You know, so I'll pull a few from there. I'll pull a few from referrals. So I'll text a couple of people, ask for recommendations on LinkedIn, get a short list of like eight. And then I have a whole framework, Excel sheet, template and matrix built out. And I put in, I do things a little bit differently, right? A lot of people hire agencies based on gut, like, yeah, good enough. We'll try you and we'll see how it goes. I give them access to everything. I let them do an audit and then I assess what their uh, recommendations are because I know the problems already. I want to see if they're picking them up and if they're strategic enough to give me the right recommendations that aren't just Google's recommendations or something that's really surface level. And I also do this a little bit differently where I have kind of a requirements document. I call it like a soft RFP document. And I tell them everything they need to know about the company, the state of affairs, what our goals are. This is the exact budget. Do not come in above it. (laughs) This is what I'm looking for. I want to meet the account team before because you always get the A team that sells you. And then the B team graduate who's managing your million dollar budget. And you're like, no, this isn't going to work. So there is a framework. I set expectations. We're all aligned. And then it ends up being beautiful partnership most times. There's still going to be outliers, but this is a great example. And this is, again, this is why I'm not good at this. It's like you need to be good at anything in marketing or business sense. You need to be able to articulate what good looks like. And I think in this example, I've been like, hire agency, do this. And they're like, okay, well, and then I get the work back and it, I don't like it, right? But that's because I failed to define what I want and what good looks like and what success looks like. And when you do more of the work up front, whether it's hiring somebody on your team or hiring an agency or hiring a, a vendor, right? They will have such a better set of expectations. And on the flip side of this too, you have a very clear rubric now to judge the success of this other than like, yeah, they look good, right? Yeah. And I get to see how their brains work, which is important because the thing is, most digital teams run extremely lean. I mean, the biggest one I've been on was 13, total outlier there. Most of them are one to three people. And so your external agencies are your team. So you're only as good as your team is. And when I look at the recommendations, I don't care if they give me the fanciest deck or, you know, the person who beat out eight agencies I always joke with him that he wrote his presentation on a piece of toilet paper and handed it to me, but it had better recommendations than agencies who were huge. And he won the business, came in within budget and actually listened to what I asked them to do. But that's the thing is, I don't think clients take a very good responsibility either on the other side of it because they hide information or they don't feel like they need to tell the agencies what's relevant. 
but I'm very open about that. I'm like, okay, you give me the platform metrics. I'm going to show you what's behind the curtain. We're going to look at the lead quality every week. We're going to talk about whether your things are working or not working. And I need you to bring ideas to the table because I can't do all the thinking all the time. So yeah. And also I try to make it fun. You know, we get too serious. And so there's lots of jokes flying about and trolling and that kind of thing. Well, yeah, because you don't want to get run over by the wrecking ball. So you got to make jokes. So you don't... (laughs) It sounds worse than it is, I promise. You're working out listening to Drake, then you're the wrecking ball. I like you already. (laughs) Exactly. Let's talk about growing. I like this topic. We don't talk about this enough. Growing your career in marketing like an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I think you need to be a big advocate for yourself, big advocate for your career path, your compensation. Yeah. You mentioned that you were able to, you increased your income 600. You are really data-driven and template-driven. <laughs> 600% increase in income over the last 13 years. Like, of course you measured that. <laughs> I absolutely measured that. I like numbers right. a lot. In like one to two minutes on, on this podcast, which is obviously a, a big ask, just talk about advocating for yourself, how you've gone about navigating that path, getting races and promotions, and et cetera. Uh, when I moved here, I moved here in 2010. And a lot of people said, hey, you know, as a woman and as a minority, it's going to be a little bit harder for you. And and I couldn't understand why. I'm like, why would it be harder for me? Wait, moved here from where? I'm half Indian, half Thai. So I lived in India and Thailand, and then I moved to the U.S. There's a lot going on back there. Oh, got it. So people are like, welcome to America. You're a brown woman. Good luck (laughs) to you. (laughs) Good luck trying to get equal pay, okay? And so I'm like, watch me. Hold my beer. Love that. 600% show them. (laughs) Yes, 600% show them. And actually, the New York Times has some census from like, they need to update it, but like five or six years ago where you can plug in your race, your gender, your income, you know, what your degree is and stuff like that. And it will tell you how much of a percentage above other people in terms of just like income ratio and like where you are. And so I, for some reason, use that as a measure to say, okay, am I benchmark or am I being, is there some kind of hidden bias that's at play? Because I never felt it actively, but maybe it was something that was happening behind the scenes. My children are interracial, so that's something I need to consider. And am I setting the path for them? So one of the things that I learned very early on, and it's actually kind of simple, it's ask. (laughs) I mean, the worst they could say is no, just ask. There are tactful, nice ways to ask. The most they can say is no, that's one. Two, create a lot of demand for yourself. So mostly I've been able to do that because I've had companies compete for me at the same time. And I think knowing that, right, just marketing 101, creating more of a demand. So how does that play out? Like inside of a company, you just might take a conversation with somebody who's interested and get a benchmark of like what you could make elsewhere? Well, yeah, sometimes, you know, you obviously, I'm sure lots of people are recruited while they're at companies. If I'm actively job searching and somehow the stars line up where I have multiple conversations, this is obviously prior to this market, right? This market's a little bit crazy. But this was, you know, back like even a few years ago, just having multiple conversations and just knowing, okay, my ideas and thoughts are valid. I could really help and like focus on providing value and you know how much you can do. Also, I do a lot of free work. I show portfolios. I do audits without them asking me. I run a few projects without them asking me. And I think that kind of helps set the stage because they're like, oh, dang, I didn't ask her. She did this. The value is already there. It's almost like a lead magnet but for your job hunt. And then you name your price. And honestly, just learning to say no and choosing... I think you and I have talked about this before. Choosing a moment of discomfort over long-term resentment. 
choose the moment of discomfort, ask one time, the worst they could say is no. And honestly, most times they say yes. Well, and just realize that that person is also an employee at the company or is oftentimes a CEO. Their boss is the board. They're probably going to ask for a raise at some point too. Yeah, totally. Why not you? Is that something you've been comfortable just asking from in the right out of the gate? Obviously, I have a different perspective on this as a male, but like in the past, I've had coworkers or people on my team be like, you know, this is something that's harder for me as a woman or as a minority to like speak up and be the advocate for my salary. Like, is this just who you are and and how you've done it? Or like, what got you to do that? That can be a painful... It is painful. Yeah. Because I think the idea is, oh, okay, if Dave asks, he's assertive and he's a go-getter. But then if I ask, I'm the angry brown woman, you know? <laughs> so so how do I not be the angry brown woman? But also, how do I not do this like people-pleasing, I'll do anything, you know, that kind of thing, or coming across kind of meek or submissive. But I think it's just a matter of just treating it as if it was matter of fact and business and just saying, hey, I noticed that the range for this position in the location that I'm in tends to be 150 to 175. I believe that I need to be closer to the top end of the range because of XYZ projects that I can come in and do right away. Here's my 30, 60, 90 day plan. Here's the stuff that I've done. Here's an audit on your site. Here's the things that I could do. And hey, if you decide you don't want to hire me, here you go. Take this audit and make sure that your next person can do that for you. And so it doesn't have to be this awkward like, hey, what do you think about um, maybe, you know what I mean? Just speak with confidence because you deserve it and you probably do. You've earned your time, you know, you've earned your stripes. Well, it goes back to what you said earlier, which is just like um, you're a data-driven template driven person. And then when you, if you come to a hard discussion with data, that can make it a little bit easier. Then it's not like you're not just being angry or upset or feeling underappreciated about your job. You're like, hey, here's what the data says of this market, or I got, you know, a bunch of peers, or here's this study that I found. And can we have a discussion about this? Or how can I get on a path to be there and have a benchmark and have a check-in? Not at some arbitrary date in the future, but like, okay, maybe you can't give me a raise right now, but it's September. Is this something that if we do X, Y, and Z, can we revisit this in December for January 1st? Yeah, exactly. So there are soft ways to approach it that still gives you the confidence and assertiveness without the fear and resentment and the anxiety that comes with it. All right, let's trade emails and we'll do a part two in a, in a month or two because I'd love to have you back on. But we got to wrap. You got to go get to website number 401. <laughs> we didn't get to talk about that at all either. We didn't yeah. talk about that. Well, we talked a lot about your website knowledge. We didn't talk about how you've done 400, but maybe we'll, we'll definitely do a follow-up. It's on my, I already made a note. I'll reach out to you and we'll do it. Everybody, if you're listening and you either just like the vibe from TAS or, or learn something new, go to LinkedIn, look her up. We always link to the guest's profile here on the podcast. Send her a note, send her a connection request, tell her that you heard about her on the show and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Exit 5 podcast. All right, see ya. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Exit 5 podcast. If you're in B2B marketing and you want to grow your career, you should also go and check out everything that we have over at Exit5.com. We've got articles, we've got videos, we've got templates. Plus, we have a community, a community of over 4,000 B2B marketing pros. Whether you're deep in your career and want to connect with your peers or just starting up and you want a place to go where you can see what people are talking about, get smarter about B2B marketing in your own time to grow your career and help grow your company, go and check it out. It's exit5.com. You can get on the email list there. 
You can join the community. There's 4,000 marketers in the community. We have a job board. We're always adding new stuff. It's really becoming the number one place you can go if you want to grow your career and learn more about B2B marketing outside of what you're doing inside of your company every day. So check it out, exit5.com. And I also want to make sure I give a shout out to my friends at Hatch. That's hatch.fm. They produce this podcast. It sounds amazing because of the work that they do. And they work with B2B companies just like yours. They offer unlimited podcast editing and strategy for businesses. You can get unlimited podcast editing and on-demand strategy for a low monthly cost. All you got to do is just upload your episode and they take care of the rest. Go and check them out. It's hatch.fm. Hello, hello, hello. This episode of the Exit 5 podcast is brought to you by Apollo.io. If you share a pipeline goal with your sales team, then you care about the deliverability of your team's outbound emails. No email visibility means no chance to get that meeting. This is the silent nightmare for marketers. We often don't even know that this is happening. The most common cause of it, it's actually an easy one to fix. You're not using the right tool. That's why hundreds of marketers at companies like Mutiny are switching to Apollo.io. Apollo has every tool you need to power your entire outbound and inbound motions. Yep, that's right. I said inbound emails too. You can ask their team about what that is. Marketers using Apollo have seen outbound email deliverability jump from 62% to 98% after making the switch. 98%, that means more replies, more meetings, and of course, more pipeline. Want to see what type of results you can get with Apollo? Head over to apollo.io slash e5, apollo.io slash e5. If you go there right now, their team will set you up with a free account for you. And as a thank you for your time, check this out. You're going to get a free annual membership to Exit 5. That's valued at $275 just for checking them out. And the tool is free. If you're not already a member, this is a great opportunity. And if you are and you want to learn more, go to apollo.io slash e5.